Um, if you have a Bible, uh, again, we're going to be in a few different places this morning, but Isaiah 9 is one passage you can uh, flip to and just be ready for. Um, have any of you ever felt despair? I know that's a Robert smiling at the back. I'm, I think he has. Uh, it's kind of a, a very intense word, uh, but I, I'm sure if we went around, everyone has a story of, of when, you know, your stomach just kind of drops and you have that just knot in the middle of your, and just this sense of dread and despair. Um, when I was a youth pastor, uh, I was filled with despair all the, no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> uh, we would do Mexico missions trips uh, every other year. And we would drive from uh, Vancouver. We would rent usually two or three 15-passenger vans, and we would drive down to Mexico, spend about a week there um, doing ministry, and then drive home. And there was one year uh, where at the very tail end of our um, trip, I felt what I would call just despair and dread. Um, we had had a great week of ministry in Mexico, and it was time to load up and, and kind of drive home. And then one of the teens started getting very sick, um, throwing up a lot. And then I was one of the drivers of one of the vans, uh, and then another team started getting sick and throwing up. And then four other ones started getting sick. And, throw and it just spread through the entire, like all 45 teenagers. And we were like, well, we have to keep driving. We can't stop. So we just handed out black garbage bags, and then I would just drive and then they would just be throwing up in the bags, and it was just awful. Just this sense of like, we're going to die as we drive. And, and then it was, what if I get it? I'm one of the three drivers. Like, no one else can drive these 15-passenger vans. What am I supposed to do if I get sick? Um, then, actually, as we're, you know, coming up from Mexico, we got to the Mexico-U.S. border, and people are throwing up. It's just awful. And then, um, this was like in 2006 or seven, uh, and, and we had a girl with us whose father was from Iran, and so then the U.S. government had a, a lot of questions for us. Why do you have this half-Iranian girl? Who's, are you trying to sneak her into the United States? Okay, everyone out of all the vans, and our kids are throwing up. Now empty everything out of the vans and the trailers. We have to, what if you have uranium in here or whatever, right? And so I remember at that moment as we're unloading things, and it's me and the other youth pastor, and everyone's throwing up, and we're like, we're not even going to make it through. And just that sense of just despair. Like, we're never going to make it home. This is awful. And we're all going to die at the Mexican border and I'm going to have to call 45 parents and let them know, your kids are dead. I'm sorry. Um, and it's just that feeling in your stomach of just, now, I know that that's, you know, we, we were fine, obviously. We made it home, and maybe I was being a little dramatic. But um, I know lots of you have felt despair in maybe more uh, serious moments where it's like the, the, the medical news that you were waiting for and it's what you were dreading and just the stomach just drops and you go, oh no, this is worst case scenario. Or you get a call from the bank that you're dreading and you're going to lose your house or, or whatever, right? There's all of these moments in life that you just feel that despair. So we're in the midst of our Advent season and, and we've been looking at the world that Jesus brings and so we're talking about um, the world as it was before Jesus and how the birth of Jesus actually uh, changed the universe forever. 
And, and it's like Jesus literally did bring a new world, a new kingdom that, that changed everything. And so we talked about that Jesus, his birth brought peace into the chaos and that his birth brought light into the darkness. And this morning we want to talk about the fact that Jesus, his birth brought hope and brings hope in the midst of despair. So for the last two weeks, we've seen, right, the fall of mankind uh, when Adam and Eve chose to rebel against God and chose to sin, it really just ushered in the, the worst of what we see in the world today. Uh, it brought in sin and death and darkness. It brought in relational problems. It brought even like the very ground is cursed and it produces thorns and thistles and weeds. And we've seen that, you know, marriage relationships are now uh, uh, fractured and broken and even just regular relationships between uh, uh, individuals, between nations. It's just, it just seems like chaos and hopelessness and darkness and death. So this morning we want to ask the question, well, what is biblical hope, and how did the coming of Jesus, how did Jesus being born, how did that actually bring us hope? Um, If you would ask uh, just culturally, what is the definition of hope, Uh, if you just looked that up online and and didn't look to the Bible for a definition, but just the world's definition of hope, um, you might hear something like this, well, hope is a desire for certain things to happen, right? I hope my plane lands on time, or I hope that I get Lego for Christmas, or whatever, right? It's a, it's a, uh, a desire that something is going to happen the way you want it to happen. Um, and sometimes hope, the way we use it in our world, is it's almost like a crossing of, of the fingers, Right, where you're like, well, I have no control over this, but man, oh man, I am crossing my fingers. I hope that this happens. Uh, I remember uh, when we lived in Ontario, my, my dad uh, was a pastor, and so money, we didn't have a ton of money, and so he would look for deals on vacations and things like that. And so uh, twice we drove down to South Carolina to stay in this timeshare thing uh, for Christmas. And then uh, I remember the year that they sat us down and said, this year for Christmas, after the Christmas Eve services, of, oh, of course, because if you're a pastor, you don't get Christmas Eve off. Um, but he said, we're going to drive down to Florida. I found a house that we're going to go to, to Florida, and all four of us kids crossed our fingers and went, man, I hope we're going to Disney World. It's Florida. We're driving 40 hours, and like we're going to be in the vicinity, so all leading up to it. And my dad wouldn't say, I'm not going to let you know if we're going or not. Uh, and, and we're just like, oh, man, I so hope we're going to Disney World. So the, the resort that he ended up booking was an old folks' retirement village. Because uh, my dad's cheap, and he's like, I got a great deal. Yeah, because everyone's 80, and we're, we're the young, and we can play shuffleboard with them. And we stayed there for two weeks, and we were an hour from Disney World, and we did not go to Disney World. Because my dad was like, it's too expensive. And they're shuffleboard. Be happy with what we got. But the whole way down, even the whole time we're there, this hope, which is the crossing of the fingers... And saying, I don't know if it's going to work out, but man, oh man, I hope dad's just pulling our leg. And, and we still make fun of him to this day. I'm like, don't, don't you have a credit card? Just put it on the credit card, <laughs> right? But that's kind of the definition of hope, right? We don't know. It's not looking good, but just cross your fingers and maybe. Um, that's not the way 
the Bible uses the word hope. It's, it's not a, cross your fingers, maybe God will do this. There's actually two main Hebrew words that are used for hope in the Old Testament. Um, one is yachal, which means to wait for something. Um, it's used in the story of Noah, if you know the story where the water, it stops raining and the waters kind of subside. And now Noah and his family, they're just waiting for the flood waters to, to go down so they can come out onto dry land. That's the word yachal. They were hoping, they were waiting for something to happen. Now the other word is kava, and it just means to wait. But this one is interesting because it's connected to the word kav. That's the root word, and, it, and it, that word means a cord. So if you think of a rope or a, a cord. So you go, well, that's an interesting word that's connected to this idea of hope, a cord. Um, when I was a teenager, we would, we would always, as teen boys, do really dumb things that we thought were so fun. So we, I remember my friend Danny had some of those really long elastic cords, and we would just hold them and then walk backwards to see what would happen because our frontal lobe was not developed. And what would inevitably happen? One of us would let go and think it was so funny, and then the cord, all the tension leaves, and it slaps, or it would break. So the word hope... Kava, coming from kav, is the idea of a cord that is being pulled so that there's a bunch of tension on the cord. And there's a, there's a, a waiting and an expectation that something's going to happen with this cord. Isn't that interesting? This hope, uh, this word meaning, as you're waiting for something, there's a tension in the waiting, and yet there's this expectation that just give it time, man. Something is going to happen. So hope in the Bible is never just wishful thinking. It, it is never, you know, knock on wood, cross your fingers. <clears throat> Excuse me. I hope it's going to happen. Hope in the Bible is a confident expectation that it will happen. That's why the Bible uh, repeatedly uses the phrase, the full assurance of hope. You'll see that lots throughout the Bible. So there's assurance. Hope is like a confident assurance. No, it's going to happen. I believe that it's going to happen. So as you read the Bible, as you read the Old Testament specifically, in the midst of the despair, in the midst of the mess that we've made, Right, let me remind, God didn't make this mess. We made the mess. And all throughout the Old Testament, there's these promises of, don't worry, God is going to fix this. There's this tension and this expectation that something one day is going to happen that is going to fix this mess that we've made. I mean, we could spend li literally days reading all of the promises of hope, um, all the way back in Genesis 3.15, we've already looked at this one. But God says to uh, Satan, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. So at the very beginning, the first sermon that's ever preached, God says to Satan, oh, oh, you're going to do some damage, but there's someone coming who's going to fix this, who's going to crush you, who's going to deal a blow to you, Satan. 
Um, Deuteronomy 18, Moses is this amazing leader to the Israelite people, and he's a prophet, and he's, he's what the people need, and yet it says this in Deuteronomy 18, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It is to him you shall listen. I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brothers, and I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I command him. So there's this expectation and this longing. Listen, Moses isn't going to live forever. He's going to die. And God says, ah, but there's someone coming like Moses. This tension and this expectation and this hope. Someone's coming one day. Listen, there's, there's at least 300 Specific promises of Jesus in the Old Testament. Promise after promise after promise that add to this this tension and this expectation and this longing for hope. Um, Much of the book of Isaiah is promises of this hope that's coming. And you have to know that Isaiah prophesied during one of the worst times in Israel's history. Isaiah 9 which was prophesied somewhere around 734 B.C., if you would take a snapshot of what did the nation, what did the world look like in 734 B.C., I know every generation thinks that we have it the worst, right? We look around the world and we're like, it's never been worse than this. Uh, Wrong. It goes in cycles. And so in 734 B.C., when Isaiah was told, I want you to prophesy, You were at the lowest of the low in Israel. There was absolute moral and spiritual decay of a nation. There was gross idolatry and wickedness. Their leaders were terrible and corrupt. The gloom of imminent invasion was there. We're going to be invaded. Assyria is going to wipe out the planet. Babylon's next. It was a brutal time to be alive. And so... You know that in 734, and between 734 and 732, Assyria invades the northern kingdom of Israel. Eventually, the northern kingdom is destroyed in 722. Then you give it uh, 150 years, and Babylon then invades the southern kingdom and completely wipes it out. And in 586 BC, all of the Israelites are taken into exile. And so God tells Isaiah, I want you to stand up, and I want you to prophesy this to the people of Israel, Isaiah 9 He says this, the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Like, imagine living then. It's an understatement, Isaiah, that we're walking in darkness. But don't worry, they've seen a great light. Those who dwell in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. You've multiplied the nation. You've increased its joy. Yeah, there's not a whole lot of joy right now in the world, Isaiah. They rejoice before you. As with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you've broken as on the day of Midian. Every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult, every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. For to us a child is born, and to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. 
Isaiah said those words 700 years before Jesus came. And he's, he's prophesying hope to the nation. He's like, man, yes, it's deep darkness. And yes, there's moral and spiritual decay. And there's idolatry. And there's invasion coming. But don't worry, there's a child who will be born. And there's going to be a peace that actually never ends. And he's going to rule. And you look at all of your corrupt rulers and all of your uh, pagan kings and people who hate God. Ah, he's not going to be like that, though. He's going to actually rule with what? With justice and with righteousness, which in Isaiah's day is scarce. And, oh, by the way, his rule will never end. So we have hope in the midst of despair. Something that you can cling on to in the tension and and the waiting. Now the sad part is for the Israelites, their hope of a Messiah became purely political. The anointed one, this Messiah that's coming, they thought, well, his job will just be to destroy all our enemies because we're the chosen people and God's going to make us a strong kingdom again. And that's why they actually ended up killing Jesus because Jesus came and he didn't do what they thought he was supposed to do. He didn't do what they uh, expected. And he didn't just overthrow Rome and say, hey, I'm here on a white horse and now Israel is strong again. Do you want to know why? Because it wasn't a political problem. It was a heart issue. And Jesus came to fix our hearts. So how does he give us hope? How do The Israelites, they're like, yeah, our hope that we need right now is just political. But Jesus didn't come to do that. Jesus faced head on all the things that we couldn't face. Jesus came and he lived a sinless life which we talked about, um, every other human being uh, on the face of the planet who has ever lived and will ever live is born sinful. And yet Jesus wasn't. He was sinless. He was, he, was, he was what Adam and Eve were supposed to be. Not only was he sinless, but he actually obeyed the law perfectly, which from day one that God gave the law Normal people just failed over and over and over. I mean, Moses is up on the mountain getting the law, and the Israelites are already breaking the first and second commandments. And Jesus comes, and he fulfills and obeys the law perfectly. Never sins. Jesus comes, and he dies in our place. Scripture says that the punishment for sin is death. So Jesus willingly goes to his death, which we deserve, And he dies a physical death, and he's buried in a tomb. And if that were it, then then everyone would have said, well, I guess Jesus wasn't who he said he was. But Jesus rose from the dead, meaning that he conquered humanity's greatest enemy, which is death. He conquered it. And so Jesus comes, and he conquers sin, and he conquers death, and he conquers darkness, and then he takes, listen, he takes his perfect obedience, and his perfect life, and his perfect righteousness, and all who then will bow the knee, and by faith believe in him, he says, here, this is yours now. My perfect obedience, I'm giving to you. It's called the imputed righteousness of Christ. 
It's this great exchange, Martin Luther says. We give Jesus our sin, and Jesus gives us his righteousness. This is where it's okay to be like, yes, amen. It's unbelievable. Jesus doesn't just take our sin. But he says, here, now, my perfect obedience I give to you. So when the Father looks at you, does he see your mess-ups and your sin? No, he sees the perfect obedience of Jesus over you. This is why we have hope. Right? We have hope in the, in the now. Because if you're a follower of Jesus, you say, man, my sin has been dealt with? Yes. Not just the past. Your future sin, your present sin has been dealt with on the cross. The righteousness of Jesus has been given to you. Your future is secure. Right? I, I remember in a, in a class I was at, the teacher asked, okay, if you, would, if you died, let's say, and you stood before Jesus, and he asked you, why should I let you into heaven? What would you say? And immediately, um, Lots of people start going, well, I would say that I tried really hard to live a good life, and I was a good husband, and I was a good father, and I went to church like 80% of the time, and I've just, I did this, and this, and this, and this, and most everyone said that, some kind of iteration of like, well, I would try and tell them, and he said, do, do you know what you'll say when you stand before Jesus? And Jesus says, why should I let you into heaven? Your answer is, you shouldn't. But because of your blood that was spilled, I know that I am welcomed in. I mean, you talk about hope? That's hope that you go, my future is secure, not because of my good outweighing my bad, but solely because of Jesus' good. So we have hope in the now. You go, man, my sin's been dealt with. I'm righteous before, before God. My future's secure. And then we have hope for the future, don't we? Because Jesus, he left, he ascended into heaven, and he said, I'm coming back. And I'm going to bring my kingdom in its fullness, in its entirety. And so we, we, have, we have hope for the future as well. See, that's what Jesus came to do. He didn't come to just deal with Israel's political issues. He, he came to deal with mankind's heart issues, to give us a new heart, to take out this old, wicked, dark heart of stone and to give us new hearts. So then the question, though, is, like we've kind of asked every week, right? Well, then how do we have hope today in the now if you remember in, in week one, I drew that picture of the already but not yet kingdom of God, right? Jesus brought his kingdom, he inaugurated it, he began it, and then he left and he said, I'm coming back and I'm going to bring my kingdom in its fullness. And so if you're a follower of Jesus, you're kind of in this in-between time. We live in this present evil age, but we're also citizens of the age to come. And so we talked about, well, you can have peace now, but we're not going to experience full lasting peace until Jesus returns. We, we live in the light now, right? And we walk as children of light and we're the lights of the world. Yet the reality is it's, it's still dark in the world. It could be said for this morning, how do we have hope in the now when you still have those moments of 
the pit in your stomach and despair, the, the bad medical news, the terrible financial news, the, the marriage problems, the, the issues going on. How do we have hope in the now when we're kind of in this in-between? How do you maintain hope? Uh, it can be very easy to lose hope, even for followers of Jesus. So again, I hope that you're not hearing that, you know, we just walk around with kind of plastic permanent smiles being like, nothing's ever wrong. I'm living in the kingdom of light. And no, like we, we, are, we live in reality. And so it can be very easy, even though all of these things are true, to lose hope because we struggle with sin and disappointment and sickness and death and depression and anxiety and all the parts of living in this fallen world so how do you and I then maintain hope in the now? So I want to give you five ways, in no particular order, five ways to, to find hope in trying times. When you, when you hit the wall of despair, right, and the stomach drops and you're just like, ah, everything is going wrong. How do you have hope in the midst of that? Uh, number one is this, you need to walk through the door of hopelessness. I know that sounds very counterintuitive, doesn't it? But is not the entire gospel counterintuitive? God saving the planet by sending a baby? It's very counterintuitive. Now, what do I mean by this? Um, listen, this basically means that, that if you want to maintain hope, you have to come to the end of yourself. You have to get to a place where you go, I can't do this, and without Jesus, it is hopeless. Like when you read uh, the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus, his collected works, Matthew puts together this amazing sermon that he preaches. How Jesus begins the greatest sermon ever preached is with the Beatitudes, which that word just basically means uh, the blessed life. Do you want to know what it looks like to have a blessed, happy life? And how does he begin? He says, blessed are the poor in spirit. And we go, that seems, that seems wrong. I'm happy and I'm blessed, and I have a blessed life if I'm poor in spirit? And you're like, okay, well, let's just, maybe that was a swing and a miss. What's the second one, Jesus? Blessed are those who mourn. And you're like, mourning? Like at a funeral? That's not fun. How is that blessed? Because it's the, it's the, the counterintuitive nature of the kingdom. You will not have hope and peace and rest unless you come to the end of yourself and walk through the door of hopelessness where you say, I have nothing to bring. I have nothing to offer. Jesus, I'm at the end of myself. See, it's so counterintuitive because if you look at the world, they'll tell you the exact opposite. Um, I, I remember um, a few years ago, our our whole Advent series was about hope. And then I was just looking up uh, examples uh, online of how, how do people who don't know Jesus give hope to one another? And there was a blogger who was a minimalist blogger who was not a believer uh, and was blogging basically 18 ideas of how you can find hope. And 15 out of the 18 were all dependent on you as an individual. Pull yourself up by your bootstraps. Go to a yoga class. Meditate. Blah, blah, blah. All these things. And it was all things that you had to do. Like 15 out of the 18 depended on you fixing yourself. It's not going to work. 
to actually have lasting hope, you just have to accept and walk through the door of hopelessness saying, I've got nothing, Jesus. Like you'll see this lots. I see this lots posted online, even Christian. I'm going to pick on the Christian women. uh, But Christian women post things like, don't worry, girl, you're enough. You aren't. I'm, I'm not kidding. Don't worry, you got it. You can do it. You're enough. But you're not, okay? That's the whole point of the gospel. Is that we aren't enough. We can't do it. And you will never have hope and peace if you keep looking inward and saying, I am enough. I can do it. You just can't. So it seems so counterintuitive. But the way you find hope is you just embrace your inadequacy. And you say, Jesus, I need you. I've got nothing to give. Man, my tank's empty. I am hopeless, Jesus. And then he meets you where you're at. So walk through the door of hopelessness. Number two, remind yourself what God has done in the past. Um, If you've ever read the the Bible, uh, God's people are constantly being told, remember what God's done. Remember what God did. Don't forget. Don't forget. I mean, Isaiah 46, 8 and 9, remember this. And stand firm. Recall it to your mind. You transgressors, remember the former things of old. For I am God and there is no other. I'm God and there's none like me. Don't forget. Tell your children. Tell your grandchildren. Build an altar. Don't forget what God has done. Psalm 77, 11, I will remember the deeds of the Lord. Yes, I will remember your wonders of old. So in the midst of feeling despair and losing hope, remind yourself what God has done in the past. And we all have moments where God showed up. We all do. And you can go back and you can talk and share stories about God's faithfulness. And do you remember when he came through for us? Do you remember when he did that? And listen, if in the midst of hopelessness and just kind of feeling despair, if you can't remember Go to the cross. You can remember that one. What has God done for me in the past? Look at Jesus crucified for you. And go, right. Right, God's faithful. Look what he did for me. He hasn't forgotten me. I am going to remember what God has done. Thirdly, um, focus on the return of Jesus. Um, I don't think we think enough about this. Unless it's like, I've cracked the code of when he's coming. It's like, oh, give me a break. I don't think we focus enough on what it's going to be like when Jesus tears the sky open and he comes back. When you read 1 Thessalonians 4, uh, verse 13, Paul says, but we don't want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, about those who've died, he's saying. That you may not grieve as others who do not have hope. Right? So Paul's trying to encourage these people whom brothers and sisters have died and they're grieving. So you talk about the pit. You talk about despair. He's like, don't be uninformed though. Don't grieve as if you have no hope. And so how is, how is Paul going to encourage these people who are grieving? 
He reminds them of the return of Jesus. He says, for since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel and with the sound of the trumpet of God and the dead in Christ will rise first, then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. Listen, lots of people have said, oh, this is about the rapture. It's not about the rapture. This is about the second coming of Jesus. And the the wording that is used is when a king would come back from conquering, everyone in the city would rush out to meet him, and then they would come in together. That's what's going to happen. The sky is going to split open, and Jesus is going to come out, and we're all going to come out and meet him, and we will be with him forever. Paul says, if you're grieving, encourage each other with those words. So think about the return of Jesus. It will give you hope. You go, man, this, that's why Paul says, you know, this affliction that we're going through, it's just light and it's momentary. It's not going to last. Why? Because Jesus is coming back. I'm only 37, but every year that goes by, I'm like, yeah, Jesus, you can come back now. I'm done. Not in like a bad way. But in like, you know, when it was earlier, I was like, oh, Jesus, don't come back until I get married. Or Jesus, don't come back. And now I'm like, any day, I'm ready. That's why the end of Revelation, it says the spirit and the church says what? Come, Lord Jesus. So when you feel hopeless, remind yourself that Jesus is coming back. Right now is closer to him coming back than we've ever been. Because every day that goes by, We're closer to him coming back. So focus on the return of Jesus. Number four, how do you have hope in despair? Well, you need to learn how to wait on the Lord. Um, Can I just be honest? This one sucks. But all throughout Scripture, we're told you need to wait on the Lord. Psalm 27, 14, wait for the Lord. Be strong. Let your heart take courage. Wait for the Lord. Um, this, like I said, this can just be excruciating and difficult. And I'm the type of person that, like, I, I can just then I'll just figure out how to fix it on my own because it's too hard to wait. But all throughout Scripture, God tells us, "Nah, you need to wait." Right, the King of the Universe is ruling and reigning, just, just wait for him. And if you knew everything that he knew, you wouldn't complain about his timing. You would learn how to wait. So wait on the Lord. And fifthly, how do we have hope in the despair is you need to learn how to speak to your own soul. Like what happens, and I, I, I have dealt with this lots, and as your pastor, I've talked with you lots. It's like your mind knows, I know the right answer, but your heart's just not there yet. Right? Where you, I know, I know to walk through the door of hopelessness. I know to remember what God's done in the past. I know to focus on the return of Jesus. I know to wait on God, but I don't believe it. 
Like, what happens when you do? Well, you need to speak to your own soul. Um, if you read, and we won't read all of it, but Psalm 42 and 43 are actually meant to go together. Um, and David talks, I mean, he is in despair. He, ta- he says things like, my soul is panting. My own tears are my food. My soul is cast down. He talks about waves have gone over me. He says to God, why have you forgotten me? He says that there's a deadly wound in his bones. His adversaries are taunting him. Paul, uh, uh, David in Psalm 42 and 43 talks about rejection and mourning. I mean, he's in a dark place. And three times in those two Psalms, Psalm 42, 5, Psalm 42, 11, Psalm 43, 5, he says the exact same thing. This is what David says. Why are you cast down, O my soul? Why are you in turmoil within me? Like, what's wrong with you, soul? And he says, hope in God. Who is he talking to? Himself. Ah, soul, hope in God. For I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. Listen, I know some of you talk to yourselves. So did David. It's normal. Right? And I've, I've done this where, man, my brain gets it and my heart doesn't. And I go, what is wrong with me? Why, heart, aren't you getting this? Hope in God. So you need to learn how to speak to your own soul. And David doesn't stay in his hopelessness, right? He, he's very honest about it. He's very transparent. But he doesn't just go, oh, then I'm just going to wallow and close all the blinds and turn the lights off because there's no hope. No, he says to himself, stop it, soul. Hope in God. And then praise him. So listen, if you want hope in the now... You have to get your eyes off of yourself. And a lot of times our hope is solely based on our circumstances, as, it, as with our peace. And you have to focus on these things. And again, I'm not saying that magically, bring, the despair will be gone. But you will get through it. If you do these things, you remind yourself of what God has done. You focus and you read and you dwell on the return of Jesus. You wait on God. You speak truth to your own soul. Um, You can have hope in the here and now. And it has nothing to do with how great you are. But it's because Jesus came. He was born as a baby. He did everything that we could not do. Um, He died on a cross and he was raised from the dead. He is the one who gives us hope. So, Father, I just thank you for your word. Um, God, uh, uh, it's amazing to me, um, Jesus, what you came to do. And I mean, it's, it's one thing for you to do all of that for your friends and for people who have their lives together, but for you to do that, Jesus, for your enemies for people who created this mess, for people who are broken and in sin and darkness, that you would come and while we were still sinners, you would die for us. I, I, we can't even fathom that kind of love and grace and mercy. 
Thank you, Jesus, that you came to give us hope in the midst of despair. Uh, Thank you, Jesus, that you are our hope. And forgive us, God, when we try and place our hope in all of these other things. We place our hope in our family or our kids or our money uh, or the, the things that we have or our beauty or all of these things. Our health, we put our hope in all of those things, and inevitably they will fail us. So God, I pray that we would learn to put our hope and our trust in you. That we would accept our hopelessness without you. That we would remind ourselves in the midst of despair or hopelessness, remind ourselves of all the things that you've done for us in the past. Your faithfulness to us. That we would focus and remind ourselves of your imminent return that we would learn how to wait on you, Jesus. And that we would speak to our own souls when, when we're having a hard time believing. So God, I thank you for the hope that we have in the future. And I thank you for the hope that you give us now. And I pray that we would just learn how to walk in that as citizens of the age to come. So thank you for coming, Jesus. And we do pray as your people uh, come again. Uh, we, are, we are ready for your return, Jesus. And so we pray that you would come. And so we just pray all of this in your mighty name. Amen.